All right, here we go. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, May 26th, 2019. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Jan Simpson. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His play God Shows Up is now in performance at the Actors Temple Theater on 47th Street. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Peter, just to reiterate, we're coming up on quickly the 75th Annual Theatre World Awards Ceremonies on Monday, June 3rd, beginning at 7 p.m. at the Neil Simon Theatre. And so uh, tell us, uh, are you all set with your banter? <laughs> uh, I, well, we'll let the public judge if the banter is any good. But, uh, yes, I'm, I'm pretty well set on what I'm going to say. So uh, we'll see if it passes muster. I hope so. Um, sometimes if you don't get the right opening joke, it sets the tone uh, for a, a, a dismal ceremony. So, so I hope I have the right one. You usually score, Peter. I've been to those events. Have you? Oh, yeah. Good. You usually you score. You. Oh, I'm so glad you attend. That's <laughs> wonderful. Peter, how do people attend? All they have to do is write me. Uh, and uh, at pfelisher at aol.com. Uh, and um, if we have room, we'll certainly put you in. Great. That other voice that you heard is Jan Simpson. Jan is the director of the Arts and Cultural Journalism Program at the Craig Newmark School of Graduate School of Journalism at CUNY and also writes for TDF Stages American Theater and has her own blog at Broadway and Me. Astute listeners will know that uh, yesterday we just learned uh, listened to Jan's interview with Adam Seidel. Seidel? I'm I, I, I keep tripping over that. The playwright of Original Sound. <laughs> so, Jan, welcome. Good morning. And you also, uh, Peter's got his Theater World Awards, and you're on the executive board of the uh, Atta Critics Circle. Uh, how did that go, the uh, last week's gala over at Sardi's? We had a great party. It was it was just great fun. Uh, we were really proud of our uh, nominees. Uh, we went all the way back at the beginning of the season and nominated people uh, uh, whose shows uh, debuted then. We uh, had a really diverse in every way uh, slate of winners, and um, and we had some great guests, and they gave great and funny speeches and, and touching speeches. So we just had a great time. It was at Sardi's on Thursday, and a good time was had by all. All right. Excellent. So, uh, Jan, you also got down to the Lortel Theater where you saw Macbeth. So tell us about this uh, two-word show. Yes, it's Mac, M-A-C, Beth, B-E-T-H. It is obviously a take-off, a riff on uh, Shakespeare's Macbeth. And this approach to it uh, uses just seven girls, um, and, and they are supposed to be uh, high school girls, so I think I can use that uh, term, or we could say young women, and they play all the roles. Um, they don't change their costumes. Uh, they are wearing schoolgirl costumes, and they don't change uh, their costumes. They do speak the original uh, uh, Shakespearean lines, but the play has been trimmed, so it's down to about a hundred minutes. Uh, Lady, Macda- uh, Lady Macbeth and Macbeth are uh, just play themselves, but the other five uh, young women play all of the other characters, and that's part of the problem. Uh, it's hard to remember if this you know particular actress is being banquo 
at one moment or if she's one of the witches or she's a guard. It's very uh, confusing uh, in that way. But the larger problem with uh, this for me is that we don't know why these young women of these young schoolgirls are doing Macbeth. They just come out, they just start doing uh, the play. They come out with their backpacks as though school is over, they're meeting, they start doing the play. And there's clearly a subtext about what's going on with their relationships with one another that informs the way they're performing the play. But we don't know what that is. We don't know who they are. We don't know what their relationship is to one another. There's no framing uh, device. There's a lot of running around and yelling and screaming and some dancing. There are modern touches. They pull out their cell phones. They take selfies of, um, of one another and themselves. And so it's really confusing. What's going on? Why are, are we watching this? A lot of energy from the performers. A lot of good performances, uh, actually. But I, I'm not sure what the director, who also adapted uh, uh, this production, uh, Erica Schmidt, I'm not sure what it was that she wanted to say, except you know, girls can be mean to one yeah. another, which I'm afraid is not news. Well, any more than men could be in voice. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So uh, that's the Red Bull Theater's Macbeth down at the Lucy Lortel. It is playing through the 9th of June. Um, Peter and Jan both got a chance to see uh, Dave Malloy's new production uh, of Octet. So, Peter, why don't you get us started on Octet? Well, yes, uh, it's very fair in in many respects to call it uh, Dave Malloy's new production, uh, even though Annie Tip uh, is credited as director because uh, Dave created the story, the libretto, uh, the score. He's done his own musical arrangements. Uh, after the show, stop by the merch stand for he'll probably be selling refrigerator <laughs> magnets there. I mean, this guy can do anything and does it extraordinarily well. Uh, when you go into the theater, now this is at the Linney Theater at the Pershing Square Signature Center, that marvelous um, expanse on uh, 10th Avenue and 42nd Street. <clears throat> Uh, you'll see that the place is really um, turned into a church basement. That's what it looks like. There are bingo tables set up. And you say, ah, oh, great. That's going that's to be fun. You know, we're going to play bingo. No, you're not. No, you're not going to play bingo. What happens is before the show starts, the tables are taken away and uh, out come eight little folding chairs. And um, so you're not going to get any prizes of bingo nature, but you're going to get plenty of prizes where it comes to music and performances because uh, – in a time when musical theater has become less ambitious on Broadway, uh, you have to give credit to Paige Davis, who's Signature's artistic director, because she's found a property unlike you've ever seen. And this is the theater's first musical, and I guess she was really waiting for something extraordinary, and in many ways uh, she has succeeded. So, uh, you know, churches are famous musically for their uh, spirituals, but here Malloy manages to create musical that seems spiritual without sounding religious. Um... And there are no, well, there are secular songs that are accompanied by um, no instrumentation. It's an acapella musical. So uh, the, the closest you get to music is um, beating on a tambourine and a pitch pipe that uh, sets the tone. So uh, it's it's about an encounter group, a group therapy session where all of them are addicts, all eight people, octet. And uh, that even includes the uh, leader of the group who seems to be very grounded, very, um, <clears throat> very much in control of what's going on. Uh, uh, her name is Paula and she's played by star Busby. That's the actress's name. And she's terrific. Uh, but you know, she seems so level-headed and then we have to remember that so many people who are level-headed have had addiction problems and she does have one and she's very frank about it. So that's what happens. Everybody gets up and everybody testifies, if you will, about what's going on, um, in their lives. Um, uh, what's really a nice fake out is that Marvin, um, who's played by an actor named J.D. Mollison, who's really terrific, um, seems very blue collar and um, 
his speech is not lofty. And we immediately uh, get the impression that he's going to be some sort of low light. Hardly. Um, he's quite an intellectual. He has a wonderful job and all that. Um, and he talks about the problems he's had with intelligent design uh, until he gets a phone call from God. Now, is this a hallucination based on drugs? You know, it could very well be, you know, but that's something the audience gets a chance to uh, decide on. Um, but of course, there's uh, romantic problems that crop up, um, and uh, Carly is uh, one who has many of them, and she's played by Kim Blank, a very, very good performance. So um, she she really has this wonderful Creta core, uh, and Creta M, if you will, uh, soul, um, when she sings, I could be so good at love, you know, meaning if she only had the chance. Now, there's a newcomer to the group, and of course, being a newcomer, she uh, has less to say, and she's intimidated to talk. Everybody else has the experience of getting up there, and, and here she is for her first time. Uh, she's played by an actress whose name is Kuhu. That's it, K-U-H-O-O, Verma. And uh, she seems to be a woman of few words. Um, and you might want to go out and get her a thesaurus, but that's not what the problem is. It's just her reticence. But once she lets loose, she becomes as uh, quick-tongued as uh, Amy and company. And, uh, oh, by the way, Malloy indicates in, in a program insert that he is influenced by a number of sources, and he does even mention companies, so I think that might be what he's alluding to. But what what's really um, different here is when Velma has her moment where she pours out her soul, um, the other people do not sing. They usually sing backup and harmony to um, everybody else, but not here. So this is obviously the story in which Malloy wants us to concentrate. So, um, so a very um, the rhymes sound perfect always, but they're they're um, often are, and they are quite evocative, even. Um, with uh, simple things like she makes the same noise as me, she likes the same toys as me. I like when um, words are rhymed that don't look like each other, so um, so that appealed to me. And there are a lot of uh, smile-inducing observations, like um, I have problems with self-service checkout. Well, don't we all? Good Lord. So um, I understand that. Now, so many times... Um, <laughs> lyricist repeat the line of a song and um, and leave it at that. I'm going to wash that man right out of my hair. I'm going to wash that man right out of my hair. I'm going to wash that man right out of my hair. You know, that type of thing. Um, <laughs> Malloy does it. He does it with the, the phrase obsessive compulsive disorder. Well, <laughs> so repeating that makes sense because that's what that is. You know, so uh, so that's really good. Now, I will admit that um, a, a show that seems kind of shapeless in a way um, always runs the risk of letting us think that uh, the scene we're seeing is the last scene. And after about 90 minutes, you assume that the scene you're seeing is the last scene. No, the show still has about 10 minutes to go. Luckily, they're powerful 10 minutes, so that's really good. So what's really, really amazing is that you would never know from this show this is the same guy who wrote Natasha Pierre. That's what's really so wonderful about it. Um, and who knows what the third show will be that we get from him that we uh, we hear and see. It might even be markedly different still. Um, but I won't be surprised if it's the third jewel of the Triple Crown. Because this guy really, really is something. We're very lucky to have him. All right, Jan, what did you think? I think I need to see this show again. Um, because it didn't work for me. And... Everybody that I talk to and and everyone I've read seems to love this show, and so I missed something. Uh, uh, I thought the performances were really committed. Of uh, this, the people who have come to this support group, this self help group, all have problems with modern technology. And so there are people who've fallen into gambling online. There's a guy who's obsessed with the game Candy Crush. Um, there's uh, people who have been victims of trolling online, uh, dating uh, online, having their only friends be online. And so they're all trying to deal with some aspect of modern online uh, technology. 
uh, and that's why they're at this group. And as Peter says, each person in the group gets a chance to uh, talk and sing about their problem. And after the third person, I went, I sat there and I thought, oh no, I've got to go through five more. Um, because they're really, the singing is, is, is wonderful. The a cappella harmonies are really impressive, but it, there's no resolution to any of the stories. It really is like, I guess, being in a self-help group where each person just sort of expresses what's going on in their life and everybody nods and then they go on to the next person. And I, it, it just didn't work for me. I was, I was bored, and now I'm, I'm just wondering why I was and what it was I missed. Well, I will say this, and uh, this may have something to do with it, um, that there is no conflict of, that you might expect here. Um, there was a what was the play at Barrow Street, Mrs. Something? Um, yeah, Mrs. Murray's Menagerie. It did I, remind me of that. Even the setting reminded me of that. Right, um, where it was about a focus group. Now, um, at the time, I mentioned that when I I was part of focus groups, people would erupt with conflict. And in a group like this, it is sort of surprising that we didn't have any real conflict in the sense that uh, there are two hot-headed, hot-headed people who uh, kind of stand each other and they always get into fights. Of, I'm not necessarily come to blows, mm-hmm. but certainly, mm-hmm. um, you know, very vociferous fights. So, but um, it does seem that uh, Dave Malloy wasn't inter- interested in conflict here. He was much more interested in, in, in character observations. But, uh, but I can understand why somebody might be bored from the vantage point that it does lack that famous thing that all drama is supposed to have, and that is conflict. Yeah, well, um, Dave Malloy is doing his next show, although is going to be, I think it's in June, at the National, uh, the Museum of Natural History. He and Rachel Chafkin are going to do, I think, I don't know, maybe two, three, four performances of uh, the Moby Dick musical oh, yeah, they've been working right. on. Yeah. They're going to do it under the whale at the Museum of Natural History. Are they Perfect. really? Under yeah. the whale? Seriously? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I think they should do a uh, a uh, reading of the Catcher in the Rye under the whale at the Museum uh, <laughs> right. of Natural History. I wonder is Catcher, Catcher in the Rye ever been talked about adaption for the stage? You know, I saw um, some songs from it um, huh. back back in the seventies. Wow. Uh, a, 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 a young writer named Paris Barkley, who's gone on to be a, oh. a, a. Do you know Paris? I know who he is. I don't know him personally, but he's like a big deal director and indeed. showrunner and so on. Yeah, yeah. indeed, indeed. Uh, he was at Harvard, and I went to see uh, a review of his stuff, and he had a couple of songs from uh, Catcher in the Rye. I would think that of all the properties in the world, that would have been the hardest to get the rights to. Uh, I was going to say, Salinger gave the rights to that. Nah, I doubt well, it. I doubt, I doubt it. <laughs> While you're a pudding, you can just do about anything you want, you know? <laughs> well, you know, uh, of course, we have the ideal title for uh, a musical of Catcher in the Rye, and that's Holden Boy. Anyway, let's go on. <laughs> Sorry, that won't happen again. I am not using that, I am not using that joke at the Theater World Awards. Okay, good. <laughs> well, let's move on to the nine stories other in the day. Uh, talking about character studies, our, our uh, Bess Wall is, uh, writes a lot of uh, shows about character studies, and uh, Jan, you got over to Manhattan Theater Club uh, City Center to see continuity. So tell us about that. I was really excited about this because I just loved her last play, um, Small Mouth Sounds, which was the silent play, um, which was just so terrific. So I was really looking forward to seeing uh, this one. And this play has been advertised as being about climate change. And so I was interested to see what she would do with that. And I I was disappointed. I, I, I guess I should just get right to it. It's a little bit difficult to talk about the play without spoiling uh, uh, 
the very beginning, but it is the very beginning. So uh, before you enter, it's at uh, Manhattan Theatre Club's studio space, and b before you enter, you hear uh, what sounds like a snowstorm. And when you walk in, there's this big block of, of obviously fake ice uh, in the middle of the, the, the playing space. And uh, as the show begins, um, some people rush onto the stage. One of them is holding a gun uh, on 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 one of them on another of them uh the third person who's rushed on with them is begging him not to shoot uh the person he's aiming the gun at the dialogue sounds really amateurish and stereotypical and then uh it hits you just as they say it that this is all false and it is um, a movie set. And uh. a movie is, and, and because as the dialogue was going on, I was thinking, uh, yes, her last play was silent, but she's too good a writer to be writing this kind of dialogue. And what we get is there's this movie that's being done about uh, climate change in some way just leave that there and what we're really looking at are the people on the set of the and and they fall into here there is a problem they fall into the traditional uh stereotypes of the egotistic star and uh the young woman who's just looking for her break she's rada trained and she's just waiting for somebody to give her the kind of part that she can show what she can do. The sort of himbo uh, guy who's just great looking and that's the only real reason he's in the movie. He can hardly remember his lines. We get those. And then there is a science advisor who's there to advise them on to make sure that the things they're saying about climate change are really true. And he emerges as the play goes on as a more significant person. The problem, there's also the director of the play who's a young indie filmmaker. It's a woman and women don't usually get chances on the basis of their indie films to do big studio movies and this is a big studio movie so she's feeling the weight of that also there is the uh, scriptwriter, the guy who's uh, done the written uh, this film and he is the director's former lover so we've got all of these moving uh, parts and a lot of it is played for laughs because of the interactions between these people. But Wall and the science person, uh, advisor, continually uh, bring it back to talking about climate change. And she just has not, I think a few more drafts would help because she's not found a way to integrate the message that she wants to get across about how we just don't respond to this real existential threat, the existence of the planet, where we, 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 we pretend that we care, uh, but we're not acting. In, in, in a way that may, may save uh, the world as, as, as we know it. And she's not integrated the two. So at times the comedy gets a little bit silly and, and a little bit predictable. And then it almost, to me, grinds to a halt where we get uh, like, here's the message. And I, I just 
wish there had been, and perhaps there will be, uh, a couple uh, more work done and a way to integrate the two parts. Um, because some of the uh, comic stuff is amusing, and the serious stuff really is important. And if she finds a way to really uh, integrate the two, then she, I think she could have a powerful uh, work. But right now, it isn't. Okay. So that's uh, Continuity over at City Center. That's uh, through June 9th. Peter, you got over to the new group's production of Happy Talk, uh, back at Signature, where you were for Octet. So uh, tell us about Happy Talk. Well, uh, yeah, I have to say that I, I, I really should listen to what Michael had to say last week about it, because I think we're going to uh, be at odds about this. I'm pretty sure he said the play went off the rails when uh, the daughter came in. And um, I understand where he's coming from there, but... I think it really did pay off at the end by having this scene. Okay, so let's set it up. So Susan Sarandon, um, in a welcome return to the stage, she really is quite, quite fine. And more to the point, she looks um, tremendous. Uh, and I had a seat that was really, really close up. So uh, <laughs> good luck to her. I mean, really, it's quite wonderful. that um, and, and very accomplished. Very, very good performance. Um, and I think, um, as Jen was saying earlier, the outer critics um, really did a very good job in remembering the um, the people who were early in the season for awards. And I, I'm, I am hoping uh, very much so that, indeed, we are going to remember Susan Sarandon next year. So, um, so I really thought she was uh, terrific in this. But... <laughs> we also have one of our finest actresses in this as well. And that, of course, is Marin Ireland. And Marin Ireland plays a completely different part than we've ever seen her because what she's doing is playing the part of uh, an immigrant. Um, and she has this very, very thick accent, and she does it magnificently to the point to which it's hard to believe that this isn't the way she speaks each and every day of the year. Well, um, she needs to stay in the country, and she needs to get married. And so there has to be some sort of somebody who's going to come and help her. And she's willing, very willing indeed, to pay as much as $15,000, which she has saved working for Susan Sarandon as a maid, Girl Friday um, helper. And really, um, we, we are so impressed that she has saved all this money and that she um, also has been able to um, help Susan Sarandon as, in, in such a devoted way that um, it doesn't even seem as if they are uh, employer and employee. They really seem to have much more of a bond. And we like seeing that. That's really quite wonderful. Because so many times we hear about um, these helpers who are said to be just like one of the family. And, of course, they don't turn out to be. Well, maybe that's the case here as well. I don't want to be too specific, but what happens is uh, we do see the suitor, um, who's a gay man, who um, is willing to take the money um, to have her. Uh, there certainly won't be any relationship per se. Uh, he's played by Nico Santo. Very, very good performance as well. But then out of the blue, in comes their uh, Susan Sarandon's grown daughter. And um, she's really there to see her father, played by Daniel Oreskes. That's the reason she's come. She hates her mother. Hates her. And, you know, we are appalled at, at how, uh, how terrible she is to her mother. She doesn't give her mother a tenth of a second of a break. And the mother is trying so hard. Susan Sarandon is saying, sweetheart, blah, blah. Well, she's not a sweetheart at all. She's, she seems to be a terrible, terrible, terrible human being. And we are appalled at her horrifying behavior. No parent should have to um, endure what Susan Sarandon is enduring. And yet, and yet, Jesse Eisberg, by the end of the play, shows exactly why a daughter would hate a mother this much. It doesn't even have anything to do with what happened between them. I'm purposely being vague. But nevertheless, nevertheless, what happens here is we do say, whoa, whoa. Yeah, the daughter has a point, doesn't she? Uh, so 
not a perfect play by any means, um, but uh, Jesse Eisenberg's best, uh, and um, it's it's wonderful. This actor has now had um, four shows off Broadway and um, continues to want to do this because Lord knows uh, his movie career. Um, is certainly in high gear and has been for a long time. But he obviously wants to do this, and I would say of the four that I've seen, Assumption, Revisionist, and The Spoils, this is the best of the four. So um, the fifth one should be awfully good. (laughs) (laughs) Just two things I wanted to throw in. One is that Marin Ireland has done a character like that before. She did it in Martina Mayock's um, Ironbound, where she played a Polish immigrant. Um, and, I I saw that. and and she was uh, uh, really uh, a great in that, but I think Marin Ireland is always great. Yeah. But but also um, uh, Jesse Eisenberg. One of the reasons that I uh, appreciate him as a playwright is, is that he does roles for older women. Uh-huh. Um, uh You know, uh, I think. I can't remember the name. The was it the revisionist? Where um um, uh, who am I? Uh, Vanessa Redgrave, uh, played uh, a, a role. Um, uh, and he he creates these roles for powerful older actresses. So, you know, that's a good thing. It sure is. <laughs> uh, and he's also obviously fond of Daniel Oreskes because he also appeared in the revisionist along with. Jesse Eisenberg. So uh, <laughs> charity charity begins at home. <laughs> uh, so back in the archives uh, on March 20th, 2016, Michael Portantier gave a rave to Marin Ireland in the Rattlesticks uh, production of Ironbound. So I, that's... Uh, she really is one of our favorites here. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So, Jan, you got over to the Cherry Lane Theater where you saw Original Sound. So tell yeah. us a little bit about our leading man there. Yeah. I don't usually, uh, as you said, I did uh, an interview uh, that ran yesterday um, in our feed on uh, the playwright, uh, Adam Seidel, who wrote Original Sound. And so I don't usually review shows when I uh, am going to or have talked to the playwright. Uh, I try to separate the two. But I'm making an exception here because of the lead performance in this play, uh, by a young man named Sebastian Chacon. Uh, I'll set up the play just a little bit. It's uh, set in the world of, of music, contemporary music, which is unusual. We don't usually see that on stage. And Chacon plays a young uh, guy named Danny. He's um, someone who hopes to make it in the music business as a producer of hip-hop songs. So he creates the beats for uh, the songs. And he notices uh, one day while he's listening uh, just, I don't know, to Spotify or something, that there's a song, and it's his song. The song, the beats he's created and the melody he's created around it. And it is sung by a young up-and-coming pop singer in the sort of Taylor Swift mode. And so the, the rest of the plot centers around who owns the music, uh, the original sound, and the interplay between them and the people in their lives. Um, It's a really interesting uh, setting for a play, and it's an interesting topic because there's so much uh, in the news about plagiarizing of songs. There have been court trials. Uh, Pharrell uh, Williams and and, uh, Alan Thicke had to pay money to the estate of Marvin Gaye uh, because there was deemed to be uh, infringement on one of Gaye's uh, uh, songs. And so this is a really contemporary uh, hot issue. But this young guy is 
there's just an energy field about him and you can't take your eyes off him and he is so incredibly talented in multiple ways one you have to buy him as a young hip-hop guy and you think well you know a lot of young uh, actors could do that and that's that's true but it also turns out that this uh, young guy Danny is also an excellent musician and there's a scene uh, in the in the play uh, where we discover that he is truly a gifted musician and it, it has to be the person who is portraying that role has to be a gifted musician when the scene began I thought how are they going to do this um, and then he simply did it and so you, you need that a lot there's a lot of humor uh, in the play and so you need someone who is uh, comfortable being a good comedian and yet there are moments of real real intense drama in this and that actor has to be convincing uh, in that too. And this guy checks every single box. He reminded me in some ways of a young Bobby Cannavale, that kind of just energy, charisma, magnetism on a stage where wherever he goes, you're sort of, your eyes are just following him. And when he is not on the stage, you're sort of leaning forward, embraced, waiting for him to come back. I think really this is a breakout performance. I hope that your theater world folks uh, get a chance to see it, Peter, because I really do think this is a, a real major talent breaking uh, onto the scene. Well, uh, I'm going Thursday night. So, oh, great. Uh, at least that's... 14 and two-sevenths percent of the committee is going to be there. So I hope the other ones will be there, too. Great. Great. And I, and I hope you'll talk about it um, uh, next, because I'd love to hear what you what you think of the show and what you what you think of this kid who obviously just blew me away. Mm-hmm. Great. Okay. So Original Sound uh, Charlene Theater is playing through June 8th. So uh, check it out. And I've got a link to Sebastian's Instagram and Twitter accounts if you want to catch up with him in the show notes. Peter and Jan both got to see the -the out-of-the-box theatrics production of The Pink Unicorn. (laughs) The Pink Unicorn. (laughs) I almost said The Pink Uniform, Um, (laughs) which is a totally different show. Very different. (laughs) Exactly. At the Episcopal Actors Guild. Uh, So, Peter, why don't you get us started on The Pink Unicorn? Well, this is a very tiny space. This is hardly a theater. It's a room and the folding chairs are set up. Uh, so uh, a lot of credit must go to um, Alice Ripley, who um, certainly says, I believe in the property enough that I want to do it. It's a one-person show. She has to memorize a lot and uh, be effective in delivering what's going on. And um, so I really think it's wonderful when a major performer, and certainly Alice Ripley is and has uh, a shelf full of awards to prove that, decides that she is uh, enamored of a property enough to do it even in this place where I doubt that there are 40 seats. Uh, There may be, but uh, I don't think there's 50. Anyway, um, it's in an upper room at the Episcopal Church, um, fondly known as the Little Church Around the Corner on 29th Street near Fifth Avenue. And um, ironically enough, I didn't realize when I sat down that the person sitting in front of me was indeed Alice Ripley, uh, who uh, eventually just gets up and goes on the stage and tells this story. So uh, she's a widow. She's a Texan. And... Perhaps most significantly, she's uh, very much a Christian, and um, she's a mother of a 14-year-old girl who decides that um, she is not a girl, um, that she is genderqueer, and in fact, she's going to start a gay and straight alliance at her high school. Well, this is hardly within the... um, the woman's wheelhouse, Trisha is her name, by the way, hardly in Trisha's wheelhouse. She has no idea what any of this means. It's it's totally alien to her. And in a strange way, this may be the strangest um, analogy I could possibly make, but I I do believe it holds water. It reminded me very much of Terrence Radigan's play, The Winslow Boy. Well, I'll tell you why. Um, In that play, a father hears 
that his son has done something wrong and uh, the father is behind the kid 100 um, percent. That's and the irony is when, when the play starts, uh, the father is shown to be this really tough, no nonsense um, almost militaristic type father who do, who doesn't accept anything less than perfection. So when the kid is accused, we're naturally assuming the father's going to give him hell. Not at all. The father believes in his son and believes he's uh, doing the right thing. So I will admit that Trisha doesn't um, come to um, this understanding of her gender queer child that quickly. Uh, but nevertheless, once she makes the commitment, she doesn't go back. And that's the, the power of the story, that she really does adapt and show that she is going to make her child as happy as possible in a town where this doesn't happen and um, a lot of people feel shouldn't happen. So Alice Ripley is so mesmerizing. And the chance to be in a room, again, not a theater, a room where you're so close to her uh, it, no matter what seat you have, it's a good seat. So one of the things that, of course, people always say the best things about having good seats or premium seats is that you can see the expressions on the faces. Well, she has 36 expressions at least, um, and um, they're all worth seeing. So so this is quite a, 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 an event, and I dare say if you miss it here, you will have a chance to see it again because I cannot believe that this is the end for the Pink Unicorn. All right, Jan, what did you think? Well, um, as, as you guys know, I'm, uh, I know the producer uh, of this uh, show, the artistic director of Out of uh, the Box Productions. Uh, her uh, fiancé uh, was uh, one of my advisees at the Newmark School. And so I've seen uh, several uh, of their productions and went to see this one. And uh, so I'm just putting that out there so, you know, people can weigh my opinion with that in mind. I really liked this production. I, I um, particularly liked the fact that it was grappling with this subject in such a real sincere way um i saw i I guess most of us saw the cake um a a few months ago which was also dealing with a woman who is conservative and and christian and trying to deal in that case with her um goddaughter's decision to marry another woman and it was it for me it it played superficially uh, easy resolution and the resolution here seems so hard won uh, that this woman is really wrestling with her, her beliefs her feeling of community in this small Texas town where she lives where her neighbors even her own mother are totally against uh, what her daughter is trying to do in terms of this uh, uh, gay-straight alliance and in terms of her own coming into herself as a, as a queer person. And this, so that's on one side. And on the other side is this intense love for her child. And I do see what you mean now, Peter, in terms of the Winslow boy. And it's not easy for her to make the choices she makes. And yet she does let love guide her. And I, and, and I felt that as I think she always does, Alice Ripley just threw herself into this and so you really, uh, you know, if you've seen an Alice Ripley performance, you know you are just going to go through it. She's just feeling it, and she's just putting it out there. And I think that's what happens. And and Peter's right in 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 this beautiful, I think, little room uh, in the church. You're right there, and she's talking to you as though once again we're sort of in a support group, as though it's um, 
this meeting of, of, of people who are there to support one another. And um, <laughs> at the performance I attended, um, they served uh, 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 cookies and, 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 and juice, and I just want to really recommend those cookies. They're really good. Wow, they didn't when I was there. Oh, <laughs> I demand a recount. <laughs> um, I'm sorry I didn't mention something that Jan did because that's really one of the powerful parts of this. Yes, indeed. Um, Trisha's mother, uh, Jolene's or Joe's grandmother, is dead set against what's happening. And that makes for an interesting uh, situation because usually grandparents are more indulgent than parents. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and the fact that the grandmother here is really telling off her um, her daughter, uh, Trisha, um, you know, you're the mother, you have to take charge here, you know, so on and so forth, um, is really something. So uh, that's that's a, a very important component. I'm sorry I didn't mention it, and I'm very glad Jan did. I'm really glad that you liked it, uh, and, yeah. I hope, and I hope more people see it. Another friend, I have to say, um, uh, who is gay, and I th- think it's important to, 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 to say that, I urged him to uh, go see it, and he went to see it, and he felt that the play was dated. It's written in 2011. Um, we're just seeing it here in New York now. The playwright uh, had uh, had performed it um, before, um, and, and now they've got Alice Ripley, and who wouldn't want to mm-hmm. have Alice Ripley? Um, and and this friend felt that it was it was it, it it just hadn't kept up with the times. I don't know. I think it maybe hasn't kept up with the times in places like New York. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of places out there there are women like Trish, the, the the main character here, who if their child came to them, and 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 said what Joe uh, told her mother, would have to go through the same kind of. Uh, uh, just experience. Yeah, it, it's 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 a tricky thing, but I really do believe, you know, if, if we look at the map of the election, we see all these little blue dots in the middle of red uh, seas of ink, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, there's plenty of places where this play needs to be seen and um, and bring up these issues that a lot of people just don't want to talk about or acknowledge. So, dated is in the mind of the beholder, as far as I'm concerned. So, um, it's not dated for a lot of people. In fact, mm-hmm. it's, it's it's far too in the future for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. All right. So that is the pink unicorn, uh, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, last review of the morning, uh, Peter and Jan both got over to MCC's new, new beautiful theater. Uh, I, I will say that. I, I don't know if they think that, but uh, I it think is. That, uh, sure. To see Blacks, B L K S. So, uh, Peter, why don't you start us off with Blacks? Well, uh, this is a rip-roaring comedy, no question about that, and that's what it wants to be. And it does deal with uh, roommates uh, who um, who are living in Bushwick. Uh, the play takes place in 2015. I don't know if that's significant, but it seems to be, um, to make a point of it, taking place four years ago. It may very well be much like what Jim was just talking about, uh, The Pink Unicorn. Maybe it was written in 2015 and took four years to get on which really isn't so bad when you really come down to it. Um, very well performed. Um, I will, and of course, you know, this is, this is all about um, three women, Octavia, Imani, and June. And um, they drink, they smoke, you know, um, they have sex. And, uh, and, and as roommates, they get along pretty well. You know, it, it, it must be very hard to have uh, two roommates, you know, and, and, and get along with uh, everybody. But um, they're managing to do it. I'm going to center on one thing. I'll let Jan tell you more, but I'm going to center on one thing that always bothers me in plays. Okay. And that is, um, there is a scene where um, one woman uh, is in her bedroom and a guy she's met um, knocks on her window. It's around three o'clock in the morning and um, she, they've met, you know, and, and he's concerned about her. Uh, things had not gone well. And um, so he wanted to talk to her. OK, so um, he comes in and they go into the other room and he wants to stay the night. He doesn't indicate that he wants to sleep with her. Um, he probably does, but he just needs a place because it's so late and he lives far away, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, so she lets him stay in the living room. 
And uh, there he is. And no sooner does he pull the covers um, over his body than, indeed, in comes another roommate. Now, the roommate has had a hard time of it. She has discovered that she has a mole uh, in a private part, and um, it's cancerous. And she's going to have to have surgery. And um, so this is not a good time for her, needless to say. However, um, she is, of course, immediately frightened and astonished that somebody she's never seen before is sleeping on the couch in the living room. And they have a, a real big conversation. Also, she makes a request of him that you wouldn't quite expect her to make, um, that he's not really quite willing to uh, do at the beginning, though he does eventually um, concede and, 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 and does what she wants. But I'm telling you, these people are so loud, and I have no idea while the roommate in the other room doesn't come out and say what's going on. It never happens. <laughs> so so I'm going to leave it at that. And I do think that uh, the playwright, who has a nice ear for dialogue, um, has come up with a lot of funny lines. Aziza Barnes is her name. And uh, one of our favorite new people, Robert O'Hara, is directing. Um, and he does a good job as well. The set, I am telling you, this set. Um, when you go in there, you think, oh, what a cheap little set. Yeah, yeah stick around. Clint Ramos is really, um, they spent a lot of money on this show. I mean, a lot of money. Because just when you think you've seen the set, you haven't seen the set. And just when you think you have seen the set, you still haven't seen the set. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's pretty amazing there. But, yeah, I just have to say, it never makes sense to me when uh, a closed door is considered enough to keep somebody else from coming out when people are yelling and screaming. So that's the point I want to make more than any other. Jan? <laughs> I guess I'll uh, I've already written about this show so I'll just come out and say I didn't like this show um, it does deal with three uh, young women and it's sort of like girls or sex in the city they're different types of women uh, one uh, Octavia uh, is a, a lesbian filmmaker uh, she uh, the play opens with her and her girlfriend making very, very loud love. Um, and then she discovers uh, this, this, this mole, uh, this genital mole. And what the play doesn't quite make internal sense because she discovers that mole. They go out that night and then the next day she's going to have um, surgery, uh, we haven't even seen her go to a doctor, so there's some internal logic that that doesn't quite click. Then there's the 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 sort of shy one, Imani, who wants to be uh, a stand-up comic. Uh, she's she's like the perpetual sidekick to the other two. And then there's June, who has a boyfriend. He he always cheats on her. Uh, she's an accomplished woman. She is a uh, 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 an accountant. She's just been given a promotion at a major accounting firm. She's making a lot of money. Not sure why she's still living um, with these oh, yeah, uh, yeah. other two, but she's there. And uh, they, I think these are three young black women. And I think what Barnes wants to do is look at the different stresses that uh, and pressures and tensions uh, uh, that young black women are under. And, and I think underneath this play, there's, there's some serious stuff uh, going on. But the overlay, and the overlay is put on by Robert O'Hara, the director. And I can't say he's one of my favorites. For me, he is always, always on uh over the top. He is always full speed ahead. If he were in a car, I don't think he'd know where the brake was. Uh. He just keeps heaping it on, heaping it on, heaping it on. And so the 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 really the pathos, the serious things, the the insecurities, the fears that these young women really do feel get lost in in all of the shouting that they do, the some of it very stereotypical kinds of behaviors that 
he has asked them to to to, to uh, engage in. This play was produced originally at Steppenwolf in Chicago, and then it went to the Woolly Mammoth in Baltimore, and it got rave reviews there. It was directed by um, the woman who, uh, Nataki Garrett, who is uh, taking over the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, and I really wish I had been able to see her uh, production, because I think there is a really substantive play here that does have humor humor. It's not that I don't want people to have a good time and, and laugh and so on, but that knows how to keep uh, the two in balance. And um, sometimes that really over-the-top approach works um, in O'Hara, particularly in the plays he writes himself. I think they, they, they really work. There are a couple of his plays that I have really uh, enjoyed. But when I've seen him do other people's work, uh, his approach, his aesthetic can be um, just too much uh, for me. So I ultimately did not like blacks, which is painful for me to say. Uh, by the way, um, did your audience uh, go crazy for it the way that uh, mine did? Absolutely. Uh-huh. And and uh, what was a good thing about it, and I uh, – did take note of this in my review is that there were a lot of young people. It was a, yeah, indeed it was a, it, and there were a lot of young people of color in indeed. the audience mm-hmm. and they loved it. And so yep. it is quite possible that the frequency that the play is operating on is just like one that I can't get to. Um, but I bet those 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 young people would also. I think they loved seeing themselves, uh, white or black, uh, or, or. Oh, other. I agree with that. Sure. I, I think they enjoyed sure. seeing young people on a stage, young people engage in young people issues. But I think they would have still loved it, if and maybe even more, if the. Uh, the, the production had treated the serious things that these women were facing as much as it did the hilarious uh, things, because they would have been seen in that way too. I'm, I mean, they're facing those, you know, they're facing those issues, and they know those issues, and to see them explored, I think they would have appreciated that too. Mm-hmm. That's fair. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Robert O'Hara. Um, he also wrote a play called Barbecue that played down on the public in 2015. Did either one of you see it? Oh, sure. I like that. Uh-huh. So, Jan, did you find it driving, or did the did the director of Barbecue, who was Kent Gash, was he able to pull back O'Hara? Oh, I thought O'Hara had directed that himself. Ah, that's interesting, because that one I really did like. And so maybe... Um, Working in tandem with someone. Well, mm, although he was yeah. working in tandem with this one, that director. I I liked barbecue, and I, I liked, and I even liked that one where the it, it, the one with the big baby doll. What was that called? Yeah, yeah, it, I remember that too. <laughs> mankind. Mankind. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, I even liked Mankind. Um, it it too was over the top. I mean, that's that's his mo. Um, but this this one, uh, uh, yeah. So Peter, the uh, down at the public barbecue was designed by Clint Ramos, who we just talked about for the design yeah, of yeah. the other one. All right. So that wraps it up for today. Before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us. Tune in, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to. Find our podcast. You can find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Jan, for Peter, for me can be found at broaderradio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today, including uh, a bunch of uh, interviews we've had with Dave Malloy over the years uh, and all the shows we talked about today. And 
Alice Ripley's uh, information and Sebastian's information. So go over to the show notes and check that out. So, Peter, do we have an answer to last week's trivia? The question was, when this musical got its off-Broadway recording, this song was the 16th cut on the cast album. When it moved to Broadway, this song became the show's opening number. What's the song and what's the show? Well, I'm talking about Aquarius from Hair. Sort of hard to believe that when it was off-Broadway, it was just um, towards the end of the show. Uh, Tony Janicki knew, of course, what do you expect, and was the first to answer, followed by Jack Leshner, Deb Popple, Brigadood, Greg Christensen, Ingrid Gammerman, Mike Meany, Fred Abramowitz, and Alex Lauer. So that's the answer to last week. This week, what do these songs have in common? Conga from Wonderful Town, Fie on Goodness from Camelot, God That's Good from Sweeney Todd, It's a Hit from Merrily We Roll Along, Check It Out from The Life, Goodbye from The Producers, and Fabulous Baby from Sister Act. Okay. If you have an answer to that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Jan Simpson and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 